and welcome to The Bomb, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Joining us for this outing is a repeater and a heavyweight one at that. He is a Kentucky-based independent writer, researcher, and activist. He is the author of Uncertain Futures and Assessment of the Conditions of the Present and Acceleration, Utopian Currents from Dada to the CCRU. Folks, I give you guys the great Edmund Berger. Ed, thank you so much for joining me again this afternoon, sir. Hey, Stephen. Excited to be back here again, especially for like a, such a big one like we're going to do today. Yeah, yeah. This one is going to be awesome. So it is a continuation of the Farm's storied Wackle series, but with a twist, we are going to look at the evolution of the old Wackle network from the end of the Cold War up to the current day events. Trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how well relevant Wackle's legacy is in 2023. When Keith Allen Dennis and John Brisson and all the rest of us started, uh, who are part of the original Wackle crew, began the podcast series, all those years ago, uh, we saw it as a historical undertaking. But as the show we did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. And at the forefront of this revival is another subject as relevant now as ever. Private military and intelligence companies one of the contentions we shall make throughout this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wackle and like bodies. Whereas during the Cold War, Wackle served as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange things with a motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aiding Nazi war criminals, and next-generation black terrorists, religious fanatics, and cultists, just... Uh, the real dregs of civilization. In other words, those were the guys of the world anti-communist league, uh, the talent that they were in search of. It was an incredible milieu, both sides of which are still largely existing. That is the sort of uh, upper world and over underworld of these guys. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels now. And at the center of all this was the most enigmatic of, enigmatic of private military companies. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more than that, as we shall see over the course of this series and have already seen. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present-day war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously... I truly wish I was exaggerating with that claim. 
Up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West, the origin stories of the people who founded it, and its role in the Great Ruble Scandal, the Moscow apartment bombings, and 9-11. And trust me, folks, we're just getting warmed up. For this outing, we are going to continue with the Great Ruble Scandal, but also with a twist. This will take us into Project Hammer. And one of the true conspiracy sacred cows, the golden lily. Well, get your steak knives ready, kids. Because Ed and I are going to butcher up that cow real nice for y'all on this one. And that's just one thing we've got planned for this outing. And as with everything I do related to Wackle, this show and this series is dedicated to Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent. Uh, the real star of the original Wackle series and uh, former Mooney who provided so much amazing insight on so many levels to what went on with the original World Anti-Communist League. Ed, I hope I'm making you proud and carrying on your legacy. So, on that note, let us start the show. <laughs> Okay, Ed, let's give the kids at home a crash course on Project Hammer. So when did the public at large first catch wind of this operation? And, you know, just kind of gives an outline of what exactly it was. Well, we don't really know what exactly, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say that great, great introduction. And I hope that uh, we can live up to it. Uh, but Hammer, it, it does have this kind of very interesting sort of double life and calling it like conspiracy theories, sacred cow is a great way of putting it because, you know, there is the actual events themselves, which are really kind of hard to get a handle on. And then there's the status of hammer as this kind of uh, myth or legend that's tucked away in various writings and kind of fringe corners of the internet. I think probably like insofar as people know about hammer, it's probably from like there was a set of articles written by this uh, investment banker turned parapolitical researcher named uh, David Gayat, I think is how his name is pronounced. And they're called the, the Project Hammer File and Project Hammer Relocated or Reloaded, I'm sorry. And it was also discussed in the, the Seagraves book, Gold Warriors, but that is mainly drawing on kind of Gayat's account. And so if we kind of like dig into both of those, we learned that, you know, the original source material that they kind of, you know, used to draw Hammer into the light was a lawsuit. And it was 
spearheaded by a fairly prominent uh, DC attorney named Joseph DiRosmo and kind of the ensuing paper trail that the lawsuit generated. And this suit was actually like it was reported in the South African press. And, you know, they actually named Hammer in these like very mainstream newspapers. And I've looked and looked and I can't really find any coverage of it in the American and European press. They seem to have ignored it pretty much outright. Well, and also, too, many of the American parapolitical researchers um, have largely ignored the South African component to it as well, which is interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because, I I don't know, um, South Africa seems to have like a very, very robust uh, investigative journalism community that, from what I've learned doing this research, does really incredible work. And it's a shame that it's kind of, you know, ignored over overseas. Um, But yeah, like... You got to ask, you know, what what is Hammer and what was this lawsuit that unearthed it? Okay, so this attorney, uh, DiRasmo, he was representing a group of investors. Uh, they were Stephen Curtis, David Maudlin, and David Oster, who were all connected to another businessman, man named uh, Daniel Vincent Hughes Jr., and kind of the short of it is that Hughes, he owned a, kind of a slew of companies. They had names like Hughes Enterprises, Hughes Oil Company. Uh, he made a name for himself carrying out what was called collateral trading. And this is kind of one of the key things that we'll kind of continually come back to. Uh, collateral trading, it, it's pretty straightforward. The simplest way to explain it is that it's kind of it's a means of raising funds or business endeavors, which is what Hughes was doing. And it involves kind of like the purchasing of large packages of financial instruments. You know, we're talking like lines of credits, promissory notes, kind of, you know, all, all those types of things. You would take these packages and you would resell them to other entities, usually banks. This is basically a middleman kind of thing that collateral traders are. And it, this, of course, generates a profit for the middleman. And that profit is known as like the fallout of the collateral trade. So, you know, let's go to the summer of 1988. And Hughes, he's beginning to attempt to purchase the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which at the time, I believe, is located in Florida. And he hopes to transform the Medical Institute into what is described in the court documents as a center for the demonstration of advanced medical equipment. And at roughly the same time, a curious set of banks, the uh, offshore bank Ecoban Limited and Midland Bank Aval, which is kind of a subsidiary of the much better known Midland Bank of London, they began to enter into arrangements to purchase $100 million worth of credit lines from the Lugano branch of Citibank. And that's, you know, for people who have been listening to this series, that should kind of set off alarm bells because I know that you've talked about uh, high, high, high jinks happening in Lugano in connection to all this. Um, but Echobon and Midland Aval, they turned to a man named Peter Seaman, He was the owner of the Nantucket Holding Company of Connecticut. Uh, They turned to him for kind of financing this purchase of the credit lines from Citibank. 
So Seaman, he turns to Hughes, you know, this specialist in collateral trading, who is also kind of looking for capital for his uh, acquisition of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And so basically the way that this was work is that Hughes purchases the Citibank credit lines and resells them to Echobon and Midland. And what this would do, you know, the kind of cut of this transaction that he would get and the fees and the like would give him the cash flows to acquire that medical institute. But of course, as you know, these kinds of financial transactions, how they generally go, Hughes doesn't really have the financing he needs to buy the credit lines. So he retains the service of Oster, Curtis, Maudlin, and a company that they were all connected to called the Trust Group Financial Services of Florida. And they provide the capital for Hughes, Hughes turns, and he you know, conducts these transactions. But suddenly, kind of on the back end of it all, Hughes, Oster, Curtis, and Maudlin never receive the money that is owed to them from this transaction. Um, so they you know, do the next logical step. They launch an investigation to see, like, you know, hey, where's our money at? Uh, it's not clear how, I, at least to me, there, it might be buried somewhere in the court documents uh, that I've kind of missed. They were put in touch with a company called Intercol PTY, and this was a South African private intelligence firm owned by kind of a, 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 a dynamic duo named Adrian Stonder and Rolf Johannes von Royen. And this pair, uh, they had a whole kind of network of companies, a uh, key one being something called Ocean Tech. So Van Royen and Stander, they began working for the, the plaintiffs in this case. And very quickly, they identified them as being owed over $70 million for their work on this Citibank Echo Bond Midland collateral trade. So Stonder and Von Royen then begin to receive massive sums of money into their U.S. bank accounts, which just so happen to be located at Citibank of all location, all the while telling the plaintiffs, this is your money, we will disperse it to you soon. But then in the end, they refuse to turn the funds over to the plaintiffs and they retain this money for their companies, Intercol and Ocean Tech. So in the discovery process of the lawsuit that they initiate, they learned that Stonder and Von Royen were actually agents of South Africa's um, National Intelligence Agency, right? And that the companies Intercol and Ocean Tech were actually intelligence fronts connected with the activities of various private military corporations. They also learned that Stonder and Von Royen were affiliated with a fraudulent bank called East Tech, which was ostensibly a subsidiary of a Chinese-based bank called Sino East Tech. It was also learned, like through this discovery process, that the collateral. Uh, here, just one second. My cat's doing something terrible. Get out of here. Um, where was I? Oh yeah. Uh, they learned through the discovery process that the collateral trading effort uh, involving Citibank, Echobond, and Midland were not actually like normal business arrangements, but were part of a CIA-linked money-moving program codenamed Hammer. And so this is how, through kind of a 
very roundabout process, Hammer started to emerge from the shadows and come into the light. And uh, one thing, though, that I definitely uh, want to point out, uh, you know, if you guys to keep in mind is the Chinese connection and also the fact that this involves some stuff with medical tech, too, which is um, very interesting as well. Um, so did you have anything else on David Vincent Hughes Jr. and the Howard Hughes other than the uh, former's desire to buy the latter's companies? Okay, so like th- this is actually one of the enduring mysteries of Hammer. Uh, looked a lot at this. And if there is like a direct connection between Dan Hughes and Howard Hughes, it's not one that I'm aware of or was able to find. So it could be like a coincidence. Uh, This question definitely came up in some of the depositions that you can read. Uh, Earl Koch Jr., who we'll talk much more about, he talks about this in his deposition and he expressed confusion at it, whether or not you know, Hughes was actually related to Howard Hughes. Um, he seems to suggest that Dan Hughes himself might have been, you know, a little bit of a con man and that maybe was kind of playing up his last name to generate kind of the illusion that he was related to Howard Hughes to help facilitate these deals. So I think that that's probably everybody involved in the story is working an angle and is kind of shady anyways. So, you know, nothing's outside the realm of possibility. Indeed. And as we're going to see, I mean, so many of these guys are connected in so many peculiar ways as well. Real quick, who was heading the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and what particular family was he linked to? Okay, I I, this connection, you know, found it the other day and it just it blew me away. Um, The person who was heading the medical institute at the time, the man named Irving Shapiro. And he became the head of the Institute like shortly before the events of Hammer. And he actually turned it into an actual medical institute before it was kind of a sham uh, a tax haven that Howard Hughes put all of his other companies under. So Shapiro came in and he sold off those assets, mainly like to General Motors and companies like that, and then turned the medical institute into a bona fide uh, research outfit that gets lots of funding from the Department of Defense for all kinds of very advanced biotechnology, neuroscience, et cetera, et cetera. But what might be most important here is that before this, he was a longtime fixture at the DuPont Financial Empire. Uh, he was their attorney going back to the 1950s, I believe, and had become chairman of their flagship company in the 70s. And the reason that this is significant, you know, we go back to when we talked about the ruble scam, uh, kind of the central player in that, Philip Wainwright, was also from this DuPont background. And it seems that some DuPont-linked people were kind of financing the ruble scam. Uh, Another possibly important point about Shapiro is that he was on the board of of a Citibank, you know, this bank that will basically become central to the Hammer story. And he helped bring to power there a person that we're going to hear a lot about, a man named John Reed. So I think that this Shapiro connection um, is absolutely vital to the story. Yeah, the DuPont connection is definitely fascinating in light of what we were uh, just exploring in the, I think it was the last episode or possibly the episode before that. Um, mm-hmm. 
with the DuPont family's connection also to the Iran-Contra era as well. And, you know, absolutely says it's enough. I mean, they're a major power broker in a lot of uh, places where you wouldn't expect it as well. Um, I've also just uh, recently started to uh, uncover the relationship, the longstanding relationship the DuPont family had with the National Association of Manufacturers as well, which is fascinating. Interesting. I'd love to just dive into the the family at some point. You know, I think there's a lot there to find. No, there definitely is. Um, But yeah, I don't want to get us too sidetracked. (laughs) Right. There's definitely, I mean, yeah, the DuPonts, we could probably do an entire series on them as well. (laughs) Yeah. the, uh, The peculiar places that they turned up in. linked to Hughes and Hammer. What's their story? Okay, sure. So I think that we can probably set Citibank aside for now because there's a lot more that we could say about them in kind of just a few moments. I think it's probably best like to kind of focus on uh, these two banks that were receiving Citibank's line, credit line packages, and that was uh, Echobon and Midland, a vol. So you know, looked through a lot of finance journals from this period, and they show that Echobon was located in London and was run by kind of a, a British banker named Brian R.C. Fitzpatrick. There's not much information about Brian Fitzpatrick out there, you know, especially with these kind of offshore finance people kind of operate very much in the shadows. But he was the son of a man named Desmond Fitzpatrick. It was a very, very well-connected British Army officer who actually became NATO's deputy supreme allied commander in Europe at one point uh, prior to this NATO stint, like around 1962. Fitzpatrick was the director of military operations at the UK's Ministry of Defense. So we're talking about somebody who is very well-connected in the British military establishment. Uh, interestingly, in 1974, this Desmond Fitzpatrick uh, seems to have left his military career, and he became the lieutenant governor of the island of Jersey, which is a crown dependency. It's one of the Channel Islands, and it's one of the world's most shadowy tax havens. And there's lots that could possibly be said about Jersey, and it does appear in a lot of the peripheral of like the ruble scam and kind of post-Soviet asset asset flight, but you know, don't want to go too far abroad. Um, as for the other bank, Midland Aval, you know, mentioned a minute ago that this was a subsidiary of Midland Bank, which was kind of one of the UK's largest banks. It was one of what was called the the top four. Uh, interestingly enough, 
since like the 1920s, it had a very close relationship with uh, the Narodny Bank. And this was the UK or the Soviet Union's main kind of banking interface with the kind of external world market. Um, and even though that this, you know, started like way, you know, long, long time ago, uh, these this relation really started to increase in 1987, 1988. Um, became one of the main financiers for various like proposed joint ventures between like Soviet enterprises and Western financial and industrial firms. So that's an interesting thing for Midland to be doing right here as Hammer seems to be kind of spinning up. Um, also interesting is that Midland, alongside with Citibank, uh, they were both clients of Kissinger Associates, and they were both you know, among the largest traders of third world debt. And Kissinger Associates trading third world debt was very much kind of their specialty. Uh, and, you know, it might be important to note, like Kissinger Associates was seemingly very closely tied to a PMC that you've talked about a bunch in the series, which is Diligence LLC, uh, Diligence Advisor uh, Thomas McLarty, you know, he was a partner at Kissinger Associates and Richard Burt, kind of the, I think the chairman of Diligence, he joined Kissinger Associates after he left Diligence. Uh, during this time period, you know, in the 1980s, uh, Kissinger Associates was also very closely linked to BCCI. Uh, and then another possibly important point about Midland, uh, you know, right as in 1987, as these moves were kind of taking place, uh, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation purchased 14.9% of Midland. Uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai was kind of the like a longtime outpost of the, the Keswick family of Jardine Matheson, kind of the old opium uh, trading conglomerate. And these were individuals, this whole family was very closely tied to British intelligence, the special operations executive in World War II. And by 1992, Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation had actually fully acquired Midland. It became a wholly owned subsidiary. And I guess so those are the two kind of like main like official banks. Uh, but this also might be a good point to talk about East Tech which is this bank that our South African guys were apparently um, siphoning funds away into. And East Tech is a known fraud bank. You can find like various mentions of it and like these alerts issued by government regulators and like various major banks. I found some alerts that had been issued that were as late as 2020. So East Tech um, was around for a very long time and still might be around today. Uh, you know, there's this allegation that it was a subsidiary of a Sino East Tech, and uh, Von Royen claims that this Sino East Tech was overseen by a Chinese military officer. And I'm not really sure if that is true because East Tech seems to have actually been founded by a man named um, Stephen Pontenac, who's from Oregon, right? And Pontenac has this very long history of involvement, like various financial frauds. And Von Royen did, in an affidavit he gave in connection with the lawsuit, did mention Pontenac 
and his role in East Tech, he said that Pontenac helped set the bank up on behalf of South African intelligence. Um, East Tech, it ostensibly had offices in Dallas, Texas, which is interesting. Um, it allegedly shared these with an affiliated fraud bank called the Islamic Pan-American Bank, which they claimed had headquarters in Argentina. And there was like an interesting article in the Los Angeles Times in 1994, which uh, talked about both of these banks, uh, not in connection with Hammer, but with other financial frauds that they were popping up in. And the uh, this is a quote from the article talking about this Dallas offices of these banks. It says, when FBI agents dropped by the Dallas office that supposedly served as the bank's U.S. headquarters, they found it occupied by a nightclub management firm. So they were never able to actually track the banks down, even though they were operating domestically. So once again, this you know kind of goes to show you how quickly everything in this story kind of transforms into like just a parade of smoke and mirrors. How about Peter Seaman? Have you got anything else on this guy's story as well? Yeah, yeah. So Peter Seaman is very interesting. M- mentioned him earlier as being uh, involved in this thing called the Nantucket Holding Corporation. Not really sure what that company's deal was, um, but he was also a fixture on the rather small board of a company called Nine West. And so like Nine West is a shoe company. Uh, it was originally launched in New York by like some investors who wanted to manufacture shoes in Brazilian factories. And like, this might seem kind of random, like what could be significant about like a shoe company? And I'm not exactly sure, like, you know, what the shoes are all about, but the people that Seaman was on the board of this company with are all extremely fascinating. Uh, One of his co-directors was a so-called investment advisor from Florida named C. Gerald Goldsmith. And calling Goldsmith uh, an investment advisor is pretty generous. If you go back, you know, look in newspaper archives going back to the 50s, Goldsmith was a mob insider, and he was very closely tied to Meyer Lansky's infamous frontman, Lou Chesler. And one of these, you know, they were involved in kind of a number of little enterprises together, but probably the most large scale and kind of infamous um, one was the Grand Bahama Development Corporation, or DEVCO, which Chesler had formed with a... um, kind of other notorious figure named Wallace Groves. And Goldsmith joined the board of DevCo. And this was kind of like a neo-colonial apparatus that controlled the Bahamas, like things like uh, Resorts International grew directly out of the work that DevCo was doing. But what's funny about Goldsmith's involvement in DevCo is it actually entails an encounter with Philippine Gold, like, and we're not talking about Yamashita's gold here, the golden lily or anything like that. We're talking about like the real tangible mineral wealth of the Philippines. Um, one of the other DevCo investors and board members was a man named Charles Allen. It's a kind of a truly fascinating character. He had all kinds of mob links, ties to American intelligence. And together with his brother, Herbert Allen, 
uh, they ran this kind of Chicago-based investment company called Allen Company. So in the 1950s, the Allen brothers purchased Binguit, which is the major Philippine gold mining company. And there was kind of a, a wrinkle in their acquisition, and that was that the Philippines had a law that prohibited foreigners from own, owning Philippine natural resources. So they launched a scheme where Binguit, you know, would be purchased or folded into Devco, basically. And then its non-natural resource holdings would be spun off into another company called IDC. And so then they what they would do, or what they did do, was sell Binguit back to the to Filipino businessmen who were, of course, really frontmen for Ferdinand Marcos. So in this strange kind of arrangement, Goldsmith ran IDC, which is this company that received, you know, the non-gold uh, holdings of Binguit. And to smooth everything over with the government of the Bahamas to carry out this very odd transaction, IDC made secret kickbacks to the government. You know, where were these kickbacks carried through? Well, through Paul Healywell's Castle Bank, this infamous CIA mob-linked Bahamas offshore bank. Now, this is really kind of weird because if we go and we read Gold Warriors, they make this claim that the secret movement of Yamashita's gold was managed by Paul Healywell of Castle Bank and another kind of intriguing deep state ghoul who kind of appears everywhere named Robert B. Anderson. Well, you know, we're talking about this, not Yamashita's gold, but this real gold transaction. So Goldsmith was representing in all of this the interests of a Zurich-based bank called Cosmos Bank. And who was the chairman of Cosmos Bank but Robert B. Anderson? So Goldsmith works for Robert B. Anderson and carries money through Hillywell's Castle Bank. And so it's like this account that the Seagraves give in their book is almost like a funhouse mirror version of these very real events. Um, and so it's really strange to see Goldsmith like in the midst of it. Uh, there are a few other things about him that are kind of notable. Uh, if we flash forward several decades, he turned up at a September 1993 special donors reception dinner at the Clinton White House. And this would have been during the time that he was at Nine West with Peter Seaman. And the dinner you know, was for individuals who had made donations and connections with a White House renovation project. And for whatever reason, this, reno well, this renovation project was mentioned in the alleged suicide note of Vince Foster, who is Clinton's deputy White House counsel. And there's a lot of suspicion that the suicide note was fake because he goes out of his way to say like, oh, there's nothing shady about the renovation project's finances, you know, and if there are, it has nothing to do with the Clintons. So clearly there's probably something odd about this renovation project that Goldsmith was involved with. Um, another person that was present for this dinner was Jeffrey Epstein. It was his second appearance at the Clinton White House. 
And it seems that Goldsmith and Epstein actually had a kind of special relationship. You can find Goldsmith's name in Epstein's contact book. And in the recent um, trial of Glenn Maxwell, Goldsmith is actually named as the person who handled Epstein and Maxwell's finances at their like uh, a, a, at a bank in um, Palm Beach, Florida. And so, you know, all this intrigue with this Goldsmith character and suddenly he is there, you know, kind of very closely linked to Peter Seaman. And, you know, I, so I think that there's something to this Nine West company. Uh, several other directors in Nine West alongside Goldsmith and Seaman actually were named in the BCCI um, uh, case. People like various attorneys who had done like real estate deals for BCCI domestically. So, you know, not quite sure what to make of it at this stage, but I think that if people start digging into Nine West, they might start to find some very interesting things. Uh, let's circle back here to these South Africans. How did they become involved and what was their role allegedly in all of this? Okay, sure. So it's not really clear when Stonder and Van Royen got involved exactly, but I suspect that they were like, they were probably there kind of in the very beginning. Uh, Van Royen basically said as much in the affidavit he gave, the one that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, he talked about how he had a network of companies that he and Stonder were involved in. We've mentioned a couple of these, uh, Intercol, Ocean Tech, East Tech, and all of these were under an umbrella that were called the East Core Syndicate. Um, and according to Van Royen, the East Core Syndicate was an active player in Hammer and was helping, you know, move funds around, helping disperse funds, you know, stuff of that nature. Um, you know, they, they obviously first became known via the Hughes affair, but Van Royen, like, bizarrely claims that this was all a coincidence. He basically expects us to believe that he was active in Hammer, then got tapped by Hughes and his friends to hunt down these missing funds, and then subsequently learned that Hughes and the various plaintiffs had been roped into Hammer themselves. And I mean, I think that that's just a set, a set of coincidences that is just a bridge too far. So I think it's clear that that Hughes and the rest of their like collateral trading group, they were probably ultimately set up. And this was a way to divert some of the Hammer funds into, you know, to figures involved with South Africa's National Intelligence Agency. It's probably worth mentioning that like the South African press did link Stonder and Van Royen to the agency's um, shadowy strategic projects unit. And this unit pops up in all, you know, all kinds of strange money business and the, you know, uh, the use of frauds to finance covert operations seems to be kind of a, um, a, a reoccurring thing for it. Uh, there's several articles I found that talked about how this unit worked closely with an Israeli company called Phonetic Investments. And one South African newspaper article says that the National Intelligence Agency was using Phonetic to, quote unquote, 
launder massive amounts of cash into dollars and to access the financial underworld. And those sorts of allegations seem to fit the hammer mold very well, at least on the South African end of things. But to do that, we need to address the enigmatic figure of Earl Cock Jr. first. So what is this guy's story, Ed? Yeah. Oh, j- just real quick. Is it Cock or Coke? I, w- I was unsure. I, I've i seen it as Cock. I mean, uh, you know, okay. I would prefer doing it Coke because Earl Cock Jr. just sounds yeah. like it should be like a porno name. Or something. <laughs> yeah. You see, I thought it was Cock, too, but I, I was reading the Henry Morgenthau diary from Bretton Woods that mentions his dad in it. And in the diary, it has like a transcription of a conversation where somebody, um, I think it's Harry Dexter White, uh, has confusion at how Morgenthau is pronouncing his name. So then it made me doubt that, you know, what is it Cock? Is it Coke? Is it Cox? I don't know. Let's go um, with Coke then. It's more dignified. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. That sounds good to me. And um, if there's another person of the Coke family who listens to this for some reason and we're doing it wrong, you know, you can just send me an email or something. Uh, but yeah. So um, Earl Coke Jr., uh, he's one of these guys who is just super important in like post war American history. But he's like one that isn't recognized very often or really like known about much at all. Uh, he gives this incredible but fairly deceptive deposition in connection with the Hammer lawsuit that gives like a really good overview of his life. Um, the World Bank website also has an oral history that he gave then. And so like for this kind of overview, I'm drawing upon both of those sources and numerous newspaper articles and also the book, the account given in Jonathan Quitney's like incredible book, uh, Crimes of the Patriots, if people want to like follow up on some of this stuff. But like what, what one part of like what makes Coke so important is that his father, that'd be Earl Coke Sr., uh, was a big time banker in Georgia where he was associated with um, kind of a very large bank in Atlanta called uh, Fulton National Bank. And it seems that through his role at Fulton, he was like a president of it for about 20 years. He developed a um, all manner of very, very important political contacts, not just in Georgia, but like on the the national level. Um, he became president of the American Bankers Association. 
And he was actually, you know, I mentioned a minute ago, Bretton Woods. He was the only commercial banker who had participated in those meetings. And for those who are kind of unaware, the, those meetings were what kind of established the post-war economic world system as we know it. And it, you know, set up things like the IMF and the World Bank. A um, little bit later, when John F. Kennedy became president, Earl Koch Sr. became president of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. So we're talking about like a very influential and well-connected dude that definitely like is a trait that was passed on to his son, Earl Koch Jr. So as for Jr., he graduated from business school in Georgia, and then he went off to join the war effort in Europe during World War II. Um, in one very remarkable story, he was captured and was put in front of a German firing squad and was shot four times and left for dead, but somehow managed to survive, kind of like laying under dead bodies for about two days. Um, after recovering, he came home, went to Harvard, graduated, and embarked on a business career. And this included a stint as vice president at Delta Airlines where he was actually the person who was responsible for making airline peanuts a thing. So we're getting a little bit of you know an interesting background here. We now know where airline peanuts come from. Um, he went to work for the World Bank, and he was like the um, kind of the U.S.'s main representative at the World Bank, and he traveled all over the world for them and made him kind of a specialist in uh, development economics. And so while he's doing this kind of uh, both commercial and politically tinged business career, he was still kind of continuing his military career as well. Um, he served in the Korean War. He was a liaison between the staff of General George Marshall and General Douglas MacArthur. He seems to have been particularly close to the MacArthur people. Uh, later on during the 1960s, uh, he served as an aide to General Westmoreland in Vietnam. So if all this wasn't enough, he had a huge gamut of honorific titles and memberships in various groups. He had this kind of recognition from the nationalist Chinese. He was called like a an honorable comrade from them. This would be the, the KMT, the China lobby. Uh, he received the Medal of Honor from the Philippines, he was the youngest national commander of the American Legion. He was a Shriner and you know, had some kind of Freemasonic orientation as well. Uh, in his deposition, he claimed to have been a member of the Sovereign Order of Malta. This would be like the official Catholic one. But I doubt this because he was Protestant. And he's like, oh, I was the first Protestant led into the Knights of Malta. Um, given his connection to MacArthur, I suspect that this was actually one of the, you know, imitation orders of Malta, one of the orders of St. John, but I've never seen his name in any of like the military uh, lists with the OSJ. So that's an open mystery there. Um, Koch was also a consultant to numerous presidents, and he had admittedly contact with the CIA uh, though he claims he wasn't a formal asset. And it just it just goes on and on, really. Uh, but I think what's probably most interesting about Coke, you know, for our purposes here, 
is his involvement in an infamous CIA-linked spook bank, which was called Nugan Hand. And for those who aren't familiar with it, Nugan Hand was formed in Australia by a former Green Beret named Michael Hand, along with an American businessman named Bernie Houghton, who had ties to the Southeast Asian opium trade, and then an Australian attorney, attorney named Frank Hand. And kind of like in all likelihood, Nugan, Nugan. yeah, Nugan, sorry, um, in all likelihood was a direct successor to Castle Bank, you know, the shadow bank in the Bahamas I mentioned a minute ago. And Nugan Hand really seems to have, you know, it, it purchased assets that had previously belonged to Paul Healy. Well, that seems to kind of verify that hypothesis. Um, but this bank, Nugan Hand, was also very closely tied to people like uh, CIA spy master Ted Shackley and, you know, the various people in his entourage, like Edwin Wilson, Thomas Kleins, Frank, um, Frank Turple, Richard Secord. Um, and then this group uh, was kind of a private CIA that took off when Shackley, uh, you know, was kind of drummed out of the CIA during the Carter era. And you can draw pretty much a straight line between them and like the subsequent Oliver North enterprise that was at the center of Iran-Contra. Um, in fact, I would argue that it's incorrect to say that Shackley's private CIA and the North enterprise were separate things. I think that they were the exact same thing. But um, the way that Koch enters this Nugan Hand story is through this uh, DC-based consulting firm that he had co-founded. This was called Koch and Phillips. So one, one of Koch's very good friends was Admiral Earl Yates. And Yates had been this very kind of high-ranking military figure in the U.S. Uh, military Pacific Command. But after he retired, he, you know, he bounces over to Nugan Hand, and he becomes its president by 1977. And it seems that Yates brought Coke in, and they actually arranged for the offices of Coke and Phillips, this consulting firm, to act as Nugan Hand's offices, you know, in Washington, D.C. And in, during this period, Koch's name actually appears with the U.S. Treasury Department listed as the bank's main representative. And he was definitely kind of traveling around acting as a front man for this bank, uh, various activities like he would go act as their rep at like the International Monetary Fund and stuff like that. But despite that, Koch denies that he was affiliated with Nugan Hand like in any meaningful way. He says, oh, I just merely rented office space for them, um, you know, because I was trying to hook my good friend Admiral Yates up. Um, and then he claims that Yates had registered him as Nugan Hand's representative without his knowledge, which is kind of actually like a common thing that people claim. Uh, when they get caught with these shadow banks, like, oh, somebody must have put my name on there. Uh, there was stuff that kind of turned up uh, in the course of some of the investigations in the Nugan hand that show that Coke was most certainly lying, that he was far more involved with his bank than he said, uh, that he was probably involved in some of its uh, more covert actions. This involved, um, you know, 
among other things, laundering the proceeds of Southeast Asian drug traffic and, you know, arms dealing. And so I think that, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we, we talk about like in Hammer, we can get into Coke's role in it more in a bit, um, but we have the South African connection to Hammer. Well, there was a very, very strong South African connection to um, uh, to Nugent Hand as well. Uh, there was it was revealed by an Australian investigation that Bernie Houghton, or no, I'm sorry, it was Michael Hand had traveled to South Africa and had participated in the Rhodesian Bush War and the Angolan Civil War while he was still with the bank. And that Nugent Hand was actually arranging for the purchasing of weapons. They were paying for these in gold of all things that were sourced in Southeast Asia and flown to South Africa. And from there, they were sent to the various kinds of conflict zones. Um, and the logistics for these transport of arms were handled by the so-called rogue CIA agent, uh, Edwin Wilson, who was actually working for Ted Shackley, uh, this spy master. And so I think it's very possible that, you know, through his position at Nugenhand, that Koch was involved in these affairs. And so he might have become exposed in the 1970s to the South African networks. And this could very well be what sets the stage for the South African end of Hammer, which emerges, you know, a decade or so after this. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff about this, and I'm glad you brought that up. I just uh, found out uh, some of this material myself. Um, in fact, in terms of the Australian investigation, I think you're referring to the one done by Peter Butt, um, B-U-T-T, at least I boot, maybe. I don't know. I hope, Hopefully, I uh, the, the one I'm just referring to is like a royal commission. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. Boot, uh, he did an excellent uh book on this merchants of menace and he was actually one of the major guys uh, involved in tracking down michael hand here in the states it was in oregon right uh it was actually idaho which makes idaho sense. that's a common area for witness yeah. protection because it's you know so isolated and what have you but yeah hand actually if i remember correctly he continued to begin involved in the arms trafficking all the way up to the 80s i think it might have been more closer to the iran contra stuff or something but mm -hmm. don't hold me to that uh but it's interesting to note that also a lot of the people involved with nuke and hand uh, besides hand himself or former green berets uh, certainly some of the younger partners um, but anyway, you know, to put this in a bit of a historical context, I think Nugent Hand really took off like what around 74, 75 or something like that. Yeah. And it was cranking hard by the late 70s and then kind of started to collapse in the early 80s. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's very funny because like if you read the Iran Contra, like uh, when that story started to break, you know, they got so many people that were involved in Nugent Hand like immediately pop up in Iran Contra and they're just like, you know, these stories in the press even start to blur at points. You know, there was a time when these were considered like one continual story, but, you know, kind of after the fact, they got kind of bracketed off. But I don't think that's correct. I think it's very much the same story. But to return to the period around 74, 75, this is, you know, right around the point when we're basically giving up on Vietnam. And also there was a pretty significant 
um, cut back on the military forces as well, uh, which again, this isn't really talked about, but I think it's significant, but we really gutted the special forces uh, going into the early 70s, I believe, even before uh, the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam had been totally completed. So you had like a lot of these ex-Green Berets that were coming back. And the more I look at it, I do feel like operations like Nuke and Hand were partly there um, to essentially keep these assets, um, you know, on ice until they were needed again. Uh, and certainly it's, you know, fascinating when you do see Hand turning up, uh, like you were referring to it in these Bush Wars, because uh, the Rhodesian and the uh, South African Defense Force as well really uh, recruited heavily among American veterans and especially uh, Green Berets and that kind of thing, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, with Rhodesia and later South Africa, I mean, most of the actual war was pretty much entirely directed by the special forces. Um, South Africa, essentially the special operations forces were running the entire military by the end of apartheid. But uh, anyway, it's it's interesting with all of that, especially in light of one of the figures that we'll get into. And then another thing is uh, you also have to kind of throw Soldier of Fortune magazine in here, too. I mean, it's had a lot of shadowy connections for years, but it was being used heavily uh, to recruit uh, among you know, again, a lot of these uh, uh, these Vietnam veterans, these especially a lot of these former Green Berets and what have you or operations in uh, Southern Africa during the late 70s going into the 80s. And, you know, this whole sort of network continues to function going into Iran-Contra, like it's saying here. But people tend to forget that Africa, and especially the southern part of Africa, was a big part of all of this, especially with the Angolan War, uh, which really became a proxy uh, for the U.S. and the Soviet Union to sort of square off in and... Um, well, I've, I've already gotten into this in a prior episode, but there's definitely some indications that some very, you know, interesting weapons were also used during that conflict, which I think is another reason why we don't really hear a lot about the African side of the bloody 80s. Um, yeah. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, what went on in Afghanistan and, you know, there's around the Middle East and what went on in Central and South America. But yeah, Africa doesn't really get a lot of play. And there's a there's a really interesting document that I've kind of been obsessed with for a while that came out during the Iran-Contra um, kind of the discovery process in that uh, investigation. And it was one that was drafted, I believe, by Singlob or somebody in Singlob's uh, geomilitech group. And it was called a three-way trading arrangement where basically what it would do is like the U.S. would provide credits to Israel. Israel would use those credits to buy uh, American technology and sell them and then would use the profits from it to buy weapons from China, which it would then distribute. And it shows – I'll send you the graph when we're done. It's just an incredible infographic. And it shows it being dispersed through a trading company to Afghanistan, Nicaragua, Cambodia, and Africa. And so I definitely think that for them, all four of these were like a cohesive kind of, um, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, an overarching kind of strategy. Um, you know, this is the whole kind of idea of like low intensity conflict that Shackley himself was like a huge proponent of. He wrote a book about it. 
in the seventies where he outlined these are the key spots that you need to target with kind of insurgency operations. So I tend to think that like even calling it a rank contra is kind of a limited hangout in a way because it, it brackets it down into this very small package. Yeah. yeah but we're talking about a global yeah, you that's know, what insurgency I mean, program. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and that was something we really tried to emphasize in the Wackle series. The original one is just the fact that, you know, it wasn't just Nicaragua and Afghanistan. I mean, there was also, again, you know, this absolutely brutal and horrendous war in uh, Angola, but I mean, also arguably too in um, what was then, what was it, Southwest Africa, now it's named, yeah. I think, and um, obviously the Rhodesian conflict just, just kind of uh, wrapped itself up by the late 1980s, and gosh, I think there might have been another hot spot as well, but yeah, there were a lot of just very brutal wars uh, unfolding all across Southern Africa in the 1980s. It's incredible that they termed it, you know, low intensity conflict. Like yeah. that was the term they used and just like just a ridiculous term. Well, again, <laughs> you know, you have to sort of, though, in fairness to them, put this into a bit of, you know, because I've done for the book I'm working on, I'm doing, doing a lot of research and the origins of like all of this, especially, the, you know, the counterinsurgency mm -hmm. of it. But not to get us too sidetracked here, but I mean, essentially, when they started to come up with this. Um, you know, this is when like the prevailing uh, military doctrine was um, massive retaliation via yeah, mass weapons war. and so forth. So in contrast to, you know, firing the entire U.S. nuclear arsenal at the Soviets and hoping we can withstand their salvo, this this definitely was more low intense. Uh, that, that's fair. That That's a really that's a great point. So I, I yeah. should walk that back a, a bit, I guess, like, you know, from the perspective of somebody in these conflicts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you're saying. I yeah. mean, you know, because it's especially I mean, a lot of people don't really get this, but John F. Kennedy was actually one of the major guys who pushed for a lot of this mm -hmm. back in the early 60s, which, I mean, again, might be surprising to people. But, um, you know, once again, you know, he was confronted with a group of generals that, you know, were just absolutely obsessed with a first strike against the Soviet Union. So it was certainly in comparison, it, you know, it seemed like a much better alternative to, uh, do the great power thing but yeah it, it by the 1980s we were just seeing so much of this you know insanity playing out and i mean it really just descended into these genocidal conflicts all across the globe um but, you know just one final point i wanted to make too is you really see kind of the origins of um i think to some extent the modern day private military companies i mean they had already started obviously in mm -hmm. the uk with some of the stuff that like david sterling and uh, some of these other figures were doing but i mean with nugan hand like i said i think it was also partly a front for a lot of these uh veterans especially these green berets and i mean it wouldn't surprise me if he was also actively involved in recruiting mercenaries for a lot of the conflicts in southern africa as well so once again you know this is uh, kind of um another one of these components that later turns up in far west and it's fascinating to sort of see how these uh networks developed going back to this time frame for sure for sure um but okay so how did coke describe hammer and how does it relate to Citibank? okay yeah so um coke's deposition uh it outlines kind of a lot that was you know we, we've already kind of talked about that it operated as a collateral trading program 
that moved funds from overseas sources into bank accounts in the U.S., namely those located at Citibank. Uh, And he particularly focused on John Reed as the primary person of interest, like where Hammer was concerned. Um, He describes Reed, who was the, he was the bank's, uh, I think when Hammer started, he would have been director and vice president of Citi, but he ended up becoming the bank's chairman. And Koch calls uh, Reed like the trust manager who handled the inflows of these funds that, you know, this project was generating. Um, At one point in his deposition, he alludes to Reed as the big cheese and said that Reed was harder to get into a meeting with than any U.S. president. Uh, So that's that's an interesting statement. And when it comes to, like, defining the inner workings of Hammer, it's, you know, I think it's probably, like, best to quote, like, Koch himself. Uh, In his deposition, first he says, it is a nondescript name of something that's awfully hard to define. And then he says, it was mainly to bring monies back to the U.S., both legitimately and illegitimately. Then after that, he broadly suggests that this has to do with arms deals, dollars flowing out of the U.S. through various arms deals over the years, and Hammer as that, which is pulling the dollars back home. And I'm kind of skeptical that like this is what Hammer was all about, but like it also could have been in a way because Coke makes it clear that Hammer underwent transformations over time. Like it, like Hammer was continually mutating and growing in scope and rationale, which is something that we do see in the world of like covert operations. You know, I guess the um, kind of the popular term for like policy wonk types is, uh, is mission creep. And it does seem that Hammer might have been experiencing some kind of mission creep. And there are references in his deposition that there was kind of a pre-Hammer program that it grew from that was about not letting U.S. dollars fall into Soviet hands. And if you kind of like lay out like the time frame of that and what he's describing, it looks very much like the CIA's uh, follow the money program which was about tracing and blocking Soviet funds in Western Europe. And so he doesn't say that Hammer was that. He says that like that was kind of the base infrastructure that Hammer later grew out from. Um, so th- once again, it's very hard to kind of see what is going on here. And when he's talking about this kind of mission creep that Hammer experienced, he kind of alludes to how it had to do with the cast of characters who were involved in it. Uh, Coke says that nobody got out of the act. Everybody wanted to get into the act. Everybody figured out a way to get a plum in, get a plug in and hope to get more money out. And so you start to get this impression that hammer was very messy. And that seems to be very true based on kind of the Hughes story. Um, As for Koch himself, he presents himself as somebody who helped coordinate like the different people involved, uh, doing negotiations, making introductions, working on dispersing funds. And this is kind of funny because he presents his relationship to Hammer, basically how he presented his relationship to Nugent Hand in the 70s. 
you know, like, oh, I wasn't really in the core of it. You know, I was just uh, doing favors for friends. And I think that um, in both cases that this was kind of a deceptive approach that he's taking, you know, when the light is shown on it, you know, setting himself up at a distance from illegal activities. Um, like, a, you know, a good example, he says that he worked with a man named Paul Green, a New York real estate attorney, and he claims that Green was involved in Hammer before he, uh, Coke, became involved. And I haven't been able to track who Green is. Um, it's a very kind of generic name. Uh, but Coke claims that he was like the outside counsel to Citibank and that Green was working very closely with the bank and its directors. But, you know, but he didn't include Coke in any of these deals. Um, Coke had no idea what was going on on the inside of Citibank. Uh, it's, a, it's a telling pattern where, where Coke is, uh, <laughs> where, where, where Coke, you know, put, puts himself, I think. And um, one point that I wanted to make here, too, um, you know, again, it might seem sort of incredible that uh, on the one hand, Krugerrands and other gold from South Africa could actually be at least one of the sources of the gold that was involved in, you know, what for years we had sort of thought of as the Golden Lily funds and so forth. But on the other hand, that it would have required that amount of gold uh, to traffic arms to the country. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to keep something in mind here. In addition to fighting multiple um, wars throughout Southern Africa, in a lot of cases with mercenaries as well, um, South Africa during the apartheid years had a very elaborate advanced weapons program. Mm -hmm. Okay, so first there was uh all of the nuclear research that they were doing and this got a lot of attention when apartheid came to an end because there was a lot of concern about possibly some of the nukes being smuggled out and all that good stuff but this this, this wasn't cheap but more importantly it had an extremely advanced chemical and biological warfare program known as project coast and it was arguably the most advanced CBW program in the sort of Western slash Atlantic. I mean, I was saying there's South Africa is not in that, but you know, sphere of influence. It was the most advanced one, at least technically in the world at that point. Uh, the Soviet Union was usually described as having the most advanced CBW program, but uh, a lot of people felt that South Africa was at least a close second. So the South African apartheid government is engaged in two, I think maybe even three wars. It's funding a nuclear program and it's funding the most advanced CPW program in the Western sphere of influence. None of this was cheap, guys. It wasn't. <laughs> so... In this context, I think you would have to understand that, that there was a lot of money going into this. And a lot of this research has been smuggled out, as we're going to get into here in a little bit, in the aftermath of this. And this is hugely significant, and it's an aspect that nobody focuses on, it's like the Epstein case. Yeah, and I, I guess, like, you know, just to piggyback what you just said about gold, um, you know, Setting aside like stories like Golden Lily or Yamashita's gold, 
the actual gold market is very shady and it's very routine that you have what's called like aftermarket trading. Um, this would be trading of gold that takes place outside of your normal market hours. Um, it's technically, a, it, I think it's kind of a gray market thing. Um, not exactly illegal, but you know, you can go on these kind of after, you know, aftermarket uh, markets and you can buy gold at like steep discounts. And this is kind of advantageous if um, you're trying to do this kind of thing because gold is much kind of harder to track. It's not like your normal kind of dollar economy. So um, gold trading is very much used by money launderers, by arms dealers, by drug traffickers as a means of kind of concealing it, uh, their money movements in the shadows. It's kind of an ideal substance for it. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting as well that um, potentially once the South African pipeline you know, kind of uh, settled down in the 90s, maybe Russia might have been one of the uh, countries to pick up the slack. Because again, it's it's just to me, it's always I go back to it, how remarkable the, the situation was for both countries at the end of the Cold War, because you had all of these veterans of these intelligence and elite military forces who were now unemployed and both countries have become very adept at smuggling breaking sanctions and what have you during the cold war years so you know, these guys were very well positioned to uh, become major players in the black market and especially when it came to uh, arms trafficking so yeah it wouldn't surprise me if gold was being used at a large scale and had already been used for years and mm -hmm. capacity for a lot of this stuff for sure. All right. Well, when did uh, Coke, uh, what did Coke suggest the role of Standar and uh, Von Royen were in all of this, the dynamic duo? Yeah, it's a great, great name for them. Uh, so much of the discussion of Standar and Van Royen in the Coke deposition uh, kind of revolves around Van Royen's own affidavit that he gave, which is that one that outlined how their East Course syndicate was involved in hammer in some kind of kind of murky capacity. And he was asked by the attorney running the lawsuit, you know, what, what, what do you think of Van Royen's comments? And Koch said that Van Royen was quote unquote, not too far off. I'm sure he flavored it up a bit. Yes. And so it's kind of affirming that like, yeah, Van Royen and Stonder were very much had an inside track in hammer uh, Coke was then asked if Hammer, you know, included raising the funds and the transferring of funds for the purpose of providing military for providing money for military operations in South Africa. And Coke responds to this question, Sudan, the Sahara. Yes, that's been mentioned, mentioned. I don't think that was the main purpose. No. So here we have kind of a confirmation that South Africa you know, or maybe even African-wide sort of operations uh, were not the main rationale of Hammer, but had formed a component of it, which would also be kind of fitting with this whole kind of like uh, the, what I call my mission creep hypothesis that Hammer kind of evolved over time. Uh, Koch was asked if uh, Stonder and Van Royen were quote-unquote agents of U.S. arms dealers who were shipping arms to Angola and Mozambique. Uh, to which Coke responded, they certainly took credit. Whether or not they ever closed the deal, I don't know. Um, 
So that's interesting and kind of a, a kind of a classically evasive Coke response. Um, at any rate, Coke did seem very knowledgeable of Van Royen. Uh, he said that, and I quote, the man has so many names, I can give you four or five aliases of one type or another. But at the same time, he denies having ever met Van Royen in person, uh, saying instead, you know, I talked to him numerous times over the phone. He does refer to like an attempted meeting that ended up fall, kind of falling through at some point. And what, one thing that I thought was very interesting uh, that's not mentioned in any of this is that Citibank actually had a very curious relationship with South Africa that kind of became something of a mini kind of scandal even. Uh, Citi was the final U.S. bank active in South Africa, um, and it was a very kind of vocal opponent of anti-apartheid uh, economic embargoes and the boycott and sanction movement. And so in 1987, this would be about a year before Hammer was fully operational, uh, Citibank finally caves to international pressure and pulls out of South Africa. And so John Reed, you know, who is identified by Coke as the trust manager for Hammer, he goes in the media and he makes a statement about this and talked about like how much he regretted having to pull Citibank out of South Africa um, and said that they didn't leave because of political pressure per se, but because the overall political pressure that is being put on South Africa's economy was impacting Citibank's um, bottom line. And so a lot of people were very upset with Reed, you know, saying like, you know, he didn't give, he didn't care about apartheid or any of these issues. It was an economic decision by the bank to officially pull out. So that could also factor into the South African connection that we see looming up. generally believe the funds linked to project hammer came from either the golden lily the black eagle trust or both as we've been talking about before um and for those of you again unaware uh the black eagle trust funds mostly gold supposedly that the allies recovered from the access both of these funds were that is to say so the golden lily it's linked to funds that the japanese allegedly hid under these massive underground vaults in the philippines during world war ii and then they sealed them and as for the Black Eagle, this was uh, these were funds that the Nazis had hidden in various front companies and what have you around the world. But Ed, you know, you and I, I think, kind of take a different view on Hammer. You think it's actually in reference to the looting of Russia and the former Soviet bloc in the 90s and also probably some of this stuff with apartheid South Africa as well. 
Uh, can you break this down for us? Yeah, and I do want to say kind of up front that it, you know, it is interesting that it gets linked to the story of the golden lily and Yamashita's gold. Um, because there are kind of suggestive links to the Philippines. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that Peter Seaman was connected to this Gerald Goldsmith, who was very demonstrably like involved in kind of strange Philippine-based gold affairs that did have organized crime and intelligence links. Um, but there's also this really big connection with Citibank itself. And uh, in Gold Warriors, the Seagraves, they write that up, they, they write about John Reed. And they say that he was a the third in a string of Citibank CEOs groomed by William Donovan, each the mentor of the next, starting with George Moore, who was an OSS agent during the war. Rising quickly to head Citibank after the war, Moore trained Walter Riston, who trained Walter Reed. And so they're correct there that Donovan was close with Moore. Moore was in the OSS. Um, Moore then trained Riston, and then Riston trained Reed. But what's funny about this in Gold Warriors is that there was deep connections to the Philippines here that they simply like didn't mention. Maybe they didn't know. I'm not sure. Um, it's a very good book by James Henry called Blood Bankers. And I just want to read a line from it real quick. Um, and he writes, Citibank's future chairman, Walter Riston, served in the Philippines in World War II and got to know Marcos personally. Riston's predecessor as Citibank CEO, George Moore, also knew Marcos well. He headed the Philippine American Society in the 1960s. And so you have a very close Philippines Citibank connection. Uh, but then, like, we're talking about Coke a lot. You know, he had a connection to the Philippines. He received their Medal of Honor. Uh, we talk about Nugan Hand Bank, which, when you dig into that, they also were very closely tied to the Marcos family and had offices in Manila. And so I think that maybe we can't totally discount that there was some kind of um, Philippines tie-in. But I think what it might really boil down to is, like, you know, if you want your money and assets looted, call the best. You know, the the Philippines has a long history of funny money business. And, you know, when you're calling doing something like Hammer, you're going to want to have the best kind of money launderers available. Uh, but I it do. Was, uh, yeah, it go ahead. definitely like a big node, I mean, as well. And uh, especially, I think in the financial end and a lot of the, um, you know, the heroin trafficking that went on in the Golden Triangle for years as well. And yes, even to this day, there's also been rumors, too, that it's deeply involved in sex trafficking. So, I mean, this is kind of another thing about the Philippines. It's already a big smuggling region. And uh, also, too, I mean, you had a lot of, um, you know, and this is where it sort of gets interesting because, I mean, the Philippines, another reason why it's significant is it was basically the uh, country that the United States ran its first really large scale post-war counterinsurgency program you know a lot went into this i mean uh, we basically built up a whole candidate raymond medical may say saying or something like that i can't remember his name now off the top of my head uh but it was very significant it was a lot of a lot of our uh, later counterinsurgency efforts including to some extent the phoenix program were based on what we did in the philippines and there's also again a lot of 
rumblings that that was a connection to all of that and drug trafficking um, and also some of the broader network of operators involved in that whole area as Laos and so forth, which is another region where uh, another region where Michael Hand served when he was a Green Beret. And I keep bringing up the Green Beret connection because it's important to this because um, we had kind of a proto-Special Operations Command in the Pentagon that was known as the Office of Special Operations Command. And uh, the guy who effectively was the de facto head of it uh, from the late 50s and officially starting in 61 up through about 63 uh, was Edward Lansdale, who again shows up in a lot of the Golden Lily stuff as I'm sure you and a lot of people are familiar with this are well aware. In fact, I mean, he's kind of considered to have been the main guy uh, behind a lot of it for many years. But the thing about Lansdale knew a lot about drug trafficking. In fact, he pretty much uh, was the guy who drove the French out of, uh, or, yeah, I mean, the Corsicians and what have you, out of Vietnam in the mid-50s. Eventually, they got their toehold back in when they needed, when the Viet, uh, South Vietnamese government needed funding. But uh, he had been tracking a lot of this stuff for years, and uh, he actually had one of his accolades uh, working with Nugenhan in some capacity as well. But yeah, Lansdale, to go back though to um, his time as the uh, basically head of the Office of Special Operations, he was instrumental in building up what we would think of now as modern day special operations forces. He had really pushed for the creation of the Navy SEALs and also the special operators in the Air Force and the broader use of special operations forces across uh, the globe, really. And there was a lot of significant things that happened with this. I mean, one just, you know, for example, that's not really talked about, but it's all of the training programs that just the Green Berets do um, and just how many foreign militaries are sent to train at Fort Bragg or in prior years, the School of the Americas and how many times we send Grim Grays out to train a lot of other troops overseas. And this has been a major way to cultivate relations with a lot of senior military figures and foreign governments and also um, gain intel, all kinds of things. So Lansdale was the guy who really pushed for a lot of this and essentially was really the one of the major visionaries behind what became the Joint Special Operations Command and the broader U.S. Special Operations Command. So I kind of think that in some uh, instances, one of the reasons why the Philippines plays such a big role is this is where Lansdale kind of cut his teeth and where some of this infrastructure was set up. Because, I mean, he had a lot of like front companies, for instance, there that were being used during Vietnam to provide troops and uh other kinds of things. I think it was like under the guise of a construction company that was like the Operation Brotherhood and then there's like the Freedom Foundation Company or something like that. But So he was another guy who was doing a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, had a lot of ties in the drug trade and yeah, there's um, an interesting uh, linkage with a lot of these characters in that regard. In this. So when it's all said and done, I mean, definitely the Philippines is important in all of this, but I think that it's potentially important for reasons other than gold. And this isn't to say either that necessarily that there wasn't gold being used in these funds. I mean, I, I suspect that there almost surely was in the post-war years, but you have to then keep believing that there was just this El Dorado 
of gold buried there that would continue to be you know paid out to all these different groups 60 70 80 years or whatever after the fact i mean you know and then this is i mean again when you see so many of these figures tied to the international drug trade which is a multi-billion dollar industry so you know it's it's definitely something that i think people need to consider more with a lot of this yeah and um not to interrupt but oh, just go ahead. no i was uh, finished go ahead, go ahead. no 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 on the point about you know the this eldorado of gold uh, that book that i just quoted um blood bankers he talks about how after marcos was kind of like driven out of power um he was caught you know he was talking to somebody who was wearing a wire and this kind of had to do with those investigations and like, you know, trying to trace all of his assets. And he bragged that he had been looting the Philippine central bank of their gold and had re like smelted it to resemble Japanese war loot. And so it's also possible that what is commonly called Yamashita's gold is actually looted Philippine central bank gold. That's made to look like war loot. So that's interesting. But um trying to, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I agree with you that the Philippines is, like, very centrally important. Um, You know, like, and it seems that there's kind of a continuity between people who were involved in the Philippines and people who were involved in, like, uh, the looting of Russia. You know, when we talked about the ruble scam, we focused a lot on, like, Edmund Safra. Uh, his banks were critically important to the Philippines in the 1970s, actually. And some of his banks were recipients of assets that Marcos had looted out. So like, you know, I think it's going back to this, you know, talking about infrastructures and how they get, you know, developed in one place and put into other places, you know, that could really be like the main connection here. Uh, But I guess like with Hammer, I think that timing is very, very important uh, by all accounts, Hammer started to get set up in the mid, you know, 1980s and was launched in 88, 89 and was kind of cranking by full speed, you know, in the early years of the 90s and then continued to maybe around 2000. It's really not known when Hammer would have been wound down. Uh, but this time period that we're describing corresponds perfectly with both the asset flight from the Soviet Union and the Great Ruble Scam, which were actually, you know, as we talked about before, very interlaced with one another. Um, You know, this accelerated the decomposition of Eastern Bloc economies. Uh, There's really close ties, I found, between some of the banks involved in that Eastern Bloc looting and the Ruble Scam and the bank that's at the center of Hammer, which is Citibank. You know, we talked before, you know, especially when we were talking about Bruce Rappaport, how utterly important the Bank of New York was to that Eastern Bloc asset flight. Well, Citibank and Bank of New York were just, they were really close. And they often worked together in extending lines of credit and stuff like that to other banks. Uh, One kind of very notorious case was Lehman Brothers. Uh, It came out after the 2008 financial crisis that Citi and Bank of New York had acted as trustees for $138 billion in debt notes 
that were issued by Lehman that made those two banks together as like one of the largest creditors for Lehman. It was like by no means the biggest one. And so I mentioned this Lehman connection for two reasons. One to illustrate, you know, the proximity of Citibank and Bank of New York, but it could also tie into some other kind of matters that are woven into this. And this is kind of complicated uh, to unpack, but if we go back to the 1980s, Lehman was owned by American Express, um, and it was actually merged into another American Express holding called Shearson. The combined unit was Shearson Lehman. So our man who is at the center of the Rubel scam, our, our, our DuPont guy, Philip Wainwright, have confirmed now that he was a vice president in the Atlanta offices of Shearson Lehman, right? And so running Shearson Lehman at this time, so the man who would ultimately be Wainwright's boss was a guy named Peter Cohen, who had previously worked at Edmund Safra's Republic National Bank. And so I think that that makes a lot of the circumstances of the Ruble scam like a lot clearer. And then like, in 1991, right, as all this is really underway, Cohen left Shearson Lehman and went to serve as vice chairman of Republic once again. Um, the mentor of this Cohen character was a very prominent banker named Sanford Wheel. And he's kind of infamous for being the one of the key architects of the too big to fail model, uh, much like Cohen. He left Shearson Lehman, but all the way back in 1985 to kind of conduct this series of like Byzantine takeovers, mergers, acquisitions. Um, all of this culminated in 1998 when he became the CEO and chairman of none other than Citigroup, which was formerly known as Citibank. Um, his protege at Citi, a man named Jamie Dimon, is also he's currently splashed all over the media for his uh, deep, deep ties to Epstein. There's another kind of mysterious Epstein appearance in all of this. So that, you know, setting that kind of literal blob aside, um, you know, we have a question like, did City do anything that resembled Hammer, which would be secret accounts used for large scale money laundering? And did, you know, it have any connection to asset flights from Russia? And the answer for both of these is absolutely. Uh, it turns out that Citibank had something of a private unit that was called Citibank Private Bank. And this was basically like a special private bank or like a select group of VIPs, many of whom were actually Citibank's executives. Man, I just mentioned Sanford Wheel. Uh, he made ample use of private bank services. Um, but the private bank, more probably more infamously, worked closely with various kind of high-ranking political figures from around the globe and, you know, families and other insiders and individuals and their entourages. And it stashed away funds looted from, you know, various states, public treasuries. It laundered the proceeds of drug trafficking and, you know, just all those usual sorts of shenanigans that we, you know, tend to dredge up in this area. Uh, but when private banks activities kind of like erupted into a scandal, 
this happened at literally the same time that Bank of New York became a worldwide target for law enforcement. And the bank hung one person out to dry. That would be the head of private bank itself, a person named Hubertus Rukavina. Now, this is probably important because when Rukavina started working for the private bank, he went to work for them in Lugano, Switzerland in 1987. And so, you know, we mentioned earlier that uh, the hammer transactions in 88 revolved around the purchasing of lines of credit from the Citibank Lugano branch. And so that would probably mean that Hubertus Rucavina would have been directly involved in these hammer transactions. You have the same time Rucavina is running basically secret accounts at Citibank. Um, but, you know, so what exactly, you know, did this private bank do and what were its Russian ties? Uh, there's a great, great article by Lucy Komisar. Um, well, it's more of a paper, actually. It's called Citigroup, A Culture and History of Tax Evasion. And I'll just quote from her because she has a great section on this Russian connection to the private bank. She says, in 2000, the U.S. General Accounting Office issued a report that Citigroup from 1991 through January 2000, so basically our hammer time frame, had allowed more than $800 million in suspicion, suspicious Russian funds to flow through 136 U.S. accounts tied to shell companies registered in Delaware. The corporations have been set up by a Russian immigrant named Erkali Kavaladza, who used his Euro-American Corporate Services, Inc., a Delaware company and corporation agent, and international business creations to register more than 2,000 corporations for Russian brokers who were operating in Eastern Europe on behalf of Russian companies. Kavaladza then opened Citibank accounts for them. Over 70% of the Citibank deposits for these accounts were quickly wire transfer abroad, mostly to tax havens. The deposits were believed by investigators to be money fleeing taxes or the profits of criminal activities. And I really do think that this here it's the use of secret accounts. It's the use of thousands of front companies. It's the moving of massive amounts of money into the U.S. and then back out abroad. It really does match, in my opinion, what is being described in the Hammer lawsuit. Yeah, <clears throat> now, something else interesting that occurred to me as well um, in relation to the Bank of New York's and uh, also um, uh, Bruce Rappaport, who was so closely connected to it. So one of his protégés who I think came into the business around like the mid to late 80s was uh, I can't remember his first name but it was Guchkov, um yeah big Russian family and he went on to become one of Putin's main uh, financiers but he was really big in the Geneva financial circles with some other uh, white Russian uh, descendants who uh, subsequently started working with a lot of this money laundering stuff with the KGB during the 1980s and continue the relationship with Russia. I mean, pretty much up to this present day. There's also a DePalin uh, who was married to the one, uh, gosh, the automobile, Fiat, Fiat maybe, or whatever, the people who own that, if I remember correctly. But it was one of those big um, Italian dynasties. But yeah, so that, it definitely tracks, though, 
with what you're saying um because you know there was this network of russians in uh the geneva area that were doing a lot of this money laundering for the uh you know the kgb and then subsequently probably later uh, other elements of the re later russian government and the intelligence services there Rappaport was grooming one of them um it's all tied into bank of new york and this would have been unfolding in the same era where um you know, as you kind of talked about uh, Hammer, it started as a sort of operation to track where the money from mm -hmm. the Soviet Union was going to. So, yeah, that all seems to line up. <laughs> yeah. You throw in, you know, tight ties between Citibank and Bank of New York. And, you know, uh, it's hard to get, you know, a smoking gun on any of this. But I think that all the facts are very suggestive and pointing in, you know, a particular direction. Yeah, certainly. It seems like all the players are kind of present and accounted for him almost. Yeah, for sure. Didn't Midlands uh, show up in the scandals involving Robert Maxwell as well as the UK end of the arms trafficking in the Iran-Contra thing during the 1980s? Yeah, yeah. Um, Midland, which you know we mentioned at the outset, was one of these banks that Hammer was moving these Citibank Lugano credit lines to. Um, it was definitely involved in uh, Maxwell's scandals. The biggest instance that I'm aware of is that Midland worked very closely with um, Maxwell's longtime finance specialist, a uh, man named Ron Wood. And Ron Wood is kind of considered to be the architect of a lot of what Maxwell did financially. Uh, they would basically hide debts that were on the books of Maxwell's mirror group. And so Midland helped Maxwell set up... Um, basically dummy companies that like purchased in quote this debt and then Midland designed the financial structure uh, of it to kind of, you know, you would hide the debt um, very kind of, you know, they claimed it was legal. I think that regulators had a, a different opinion on the matter and they got a lot of money for their work on this received very large commissions Uh Beyond that, Midland was a huge creditor for Maxwell and actually lost about $90 million in bad loans when his whole empire finally went kind of like belly up. And so like what makes this really interesting, though, is that I found some press reports from around 1988. So this is a right in the midst of our hammer kind of run up getting off the ground and when Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation was buying into Midland, apparently Maxwell had also purchased a stake in Midland. So it's possible that this bank itself was you know, being captured by all these entities, which raises all kinds of questions about the um, 
destination of Hammer Funds? Why was it going to Midland? Um, it could also, given Maxwell's involvement in the Eastern Bloc, could also be more evidence for this hypothesis that it had to do with um, asset flight and the like from the Eastern Bloc. Uh, as for Midland in the Iran-Contra affair, um, there's one example that I, I know of, and it's a document that was entered into evidence. It's a list of all the banks where Richard Secord, um, and Secord was one of the key players in the operations and a veteran of kind of Ted Shackley and Edwin Wilson's uh, private intelligence network that was linked to Nugan Hand. In fact, too, he was also um, in the Phoenix or it wasn't the Phoenix. It was the yeah. operation that they were doing in like Laos and Cambodia with the Green Berets and whatever. There was some um, a lot of interesting guys. I think yeah. Club was also tied in with that now, if I remember correctly as well. I, I think you're correct. And I do believe that Secord actually knew a hand personally, like way back. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. They had. Yeah, yeah I've, I believe you're correct about that. Yeah. Too. So, yeah, I mean, that was like it was kind of this uh operation that was being run. Kind of, I think it was Thailand actually. Now, that it was yes, that's of, ringing a bell, but um, they also were allegedly also active in Laos and a few of the other areas. But yeah, I mean, it was basically the use of these uh green berets and a lot of like herd activity there. And of course, it was heavily implicated in drug trafficking and all that good stuff with Secord and Sinclob. Um, a lot of these guys, I believe, hand as well were all active in that and you know again it was almost in some instances as well a uh another version of the phoenix program i mean basically they were working with a lot of paramilitary units on counterinsurgency operations there as well so yeah for sure and also you know frank turple who was part of that whole shackley wilson crew um he accused richard secord i think it was in a statement that he made to the journalist jim hogan he said that Secord was trading gold for drugs. Um, so that's uh, another interesting appearance of gold accusations in this. But yeah, Secord did have an account at Midland. Um, at the time that, you know, whenever that document was drafted, it had a mere 95 pounds in it. Uh, so not much money in it at all. Uh, but I'm sure there's other Midland Iran Contra ties, but I'm not aware of them. So if you know some, I'd Definitely began to hear it. I'm not drawing any off the top of my head unless uh, Desmond Leslie, maybe, but I can't remember if he had links to Midland Bank or not. I'm not sure. It would be interesting to know. Um, but anyway, I came back here to Hammer. I'm going to start interjecting a few things into this saga now. So first off, I want to recount a curious episode. Executive Outcomes founder and head, even Barlow recounts. In his uh, run on rundown of the company, it's a book entitled Executive Outcome Against All Odds. So around 1997, Barlow is contacted by representatives from Saudi Arabia. Specific, and again, uh, you know, just to keep in mind, Saudi Arabia is very closely connected to Far West, as I can get into here in a second. But specifically, they're linked to a figure that Barlow described in his book as... His Royal Highness Prince Fase bin Abdul Al-Assad, Al-Assad, who is described as the commander of the Royal Saudi National Guard Western Deputation. This person, also based on the picture that Barlow displays and the description, is 
almost surely the future King Abdul, who commanded the National Guard there for nearly four decades and really important to the whole power structure of Saudi Arabia as well. I mean, who controlled the different military and intelligence branches. But anyway, so let's pause, okay, for a minute here. Uh, during a prior installment, a Senate, uh, a Senate briefly went over the Saudi connection to the Far West, but to reiterate it a little bit here, so you had in Khashoggi, he's been linked to Far West since it, you know, basically began to leak out on the internet around the mid-noughts. The third Barbarossa alleges that Prince Turka bin Fasi was directing Far West by the mid-noughts. Uh, he's another figure who turns up in a lot of 9-11 stuff and all that good things. Uh, and that his front man in these efforts was the mysterious Prince Rashid and Jamal Khashoggi, Aiden's nephew. Okay, so King Abdul and Prince Turkey were relatives. Prince Turkey's father was the third son of Ibad Saud, Abdul's father, and the founder pretty much of modern-day Saudi Arabia. And Ibad Saud was uh, the king of Saudi Arabia until 1953 when he jet his mortal coil. Next king, King Saud, who ruled until 1964. Then Turkey's father became king. I know it's, it's a bit of a pain in the ass tracking these royal families. I don't really like it much either, guys. Just, but yeah, so these guys are all related there. So, and then what's more, Aiden Khashoggi's father was the personal physician for Ibad Saud. So what it amounts to is that by the 1980s, when Saudi Arabia began to emerge as a major U.S. partner, two significant branches of their security services, the General Intelligence Directorate, the Saudi equivalent of the CIA, and the powerful Royal National Guard were controlled by Turkey and Abdul, respectively. And Khashoggi was deeply involved in any number of intrigues throughout this area. He's a big guy in BCCI and just so much arms trafficking and so on and so forth. Turkey and Khashoggi uh, were also both deeply implicated in the Safari Club, as Senate indicated in an earlier installment. And of course, Turkey and Khashoggi, as I said before, were also heavily involved in BCCI. So big players in all of these intrigues. So... Abdul was never as King Abdul, the future King Abdul, was never as closely linked to these intrigues as Khashoggi or Turkey, but he was, you know, basically the heir apparent to the crown since 1975. So hence they would have kept him at a distance uh, from anything that would have tarnished his reputation. Uh, but by the time Abdul's representatives and the guard approached Barlow, King Fahd, I think, had been pretty much incapacitated by a stroke since 1995. So basically, Abdul was already acting as regent by this time. Keep that in mind. So overtures are made by a Dr. Zidan, Z-E-D-A-N, I believe, Zidan maybe, who was then the Saudi ambassador to Saudi Arabia. So when the first overtures are made in 1997, it's for executive outcome to help Saudi Arabia develop a rapid response force. Nothing much comes out of this. Then in 2000, after executive outcome had ceased operations, Barlow is again contacted by, by Zidane. Again, Zidane is supposedly doing this on behalf of King Abdul, but he has a curious request. He wants Barlow to help him move a large sum of money. 
Basically, they asked Barlow if he can arrange for several planes to be procured to put this money in and move it out of Saudi Arabia. And here's what Barlow says about this. I'm going to quote from Executive, Executive Outcomes Against All Odds, pages 655 and 657. I answered most, this is uh, Barlow talking about Zidin. I answered most of his questions and explained how the aircraft would be paid for and how the teams would be recruited. He continued making the occasional note, but I suspected that our meeting was being recorded and that the note-taking was purely for my benefit. Good. What can, when can you implement the operation, he asked. As soon as I am given an official request from the kingdom, I will set the wheels in motion. I'm sure you understand I cannot just go ahead on this kind of operation without official confirmation. I also need to, once I have the information I require, develop a detailed plan and present it for approval. You have my word that everything is in order, Zidane said. Just complete your planning and get going as soon as you can. I forgot to say it, but I want you on the plane when it lands in Judea. That's very important. We will pay you once you land. My radar instantly switched on. No, things don't work like that, I said, shaking my head. I cannot arrange finance with a bank to lease aircraft, hire teams, purchase equipment and weapons, and tell them they have my word until I, that I will repay the money. This kind of operation must be funded in advance. I cannot do it out of my own pocket. I need guarantees, which only you can provide. I have no problem with being on the aircraft during the operation, but first things first, I need the letter of appointment and some form of financial guarantee, as well as an agreed deposit. But I will repay you once it has been done, he said, looking crestfallen. I'm sure your excellency would, but I need these things in advance. I see, I'll see what I can do, he responded, clearly unhappy at the way the briefing had turned out. My demeanor had gone from friendly to sulky, or his demeanor, rather, had gone from friendly to sulky. I'll get back to you by four o'clock this afternoon. I left his office deep in thought, mostly wondering why he was insisting that I be on the aircraft when it landed in Judea. I actually planned to be there long before the operation kicked off because I intended to coordinate the entire operation from Saudi Arabia, but Zidane didn't need to know that yet. Zidane never reverted to me as promised, uh, and although we still saw one another occasionally, Operation Dovetail was never mentioned again. That was his plan to transport this stuff. Although I had left the cloak and dagger world, the shooting war, and assistance to governments behind me, I continued to maintain regular contact with some of my old agents. Many had become my friends, and we met occasionally to drink coffee and discuss the world situation with particular reference to Africa. We would reminisce about the old days and how naive we had been to allow ourselves to be used in the way that we were. Ishmael, which was a pseudonym, a successful Middle Eastern businessman, and I had been friends for several years. Although he was never an agent of mine, we often met and discussed the rise of Islam, the Crusades, Islamic factions, the Islamic view of the West, and other matters of common interest. Ishmael had belonged to Anatoya Kamani's Revolutionary Guard after the Shah of Iran was deposed, and he'd fought as an infantryman during the Iran-Iraq War. He was also well-connected with the South African Muslim community. 
In early 2000, Ishmael phoned and asked me to meet him urgently in Pretoria, in a Pretoria shopping mall. I have some important information and I'm not sure what to do with it, he told me later over coffee. Okay, try me, I said. Certain people are planning to attack a U.S. Navy warship in the Persian Gulf. They have devised a method of targeting such a ship without being picked up by the ship's radar. But why tell me? Surely the best thing would do is to tell the Yanks at the U.S. Embassy. How do you think that they'll react if a good Muslim like me walks into the embassy and asks for the CIA representative and tells him such a story? Do you really think they'll believe me? Definitely not. Ishmael, I said. They won't believe me either. We've both been branded as arch-criminal-come-soldier of fortune by the media, both here and elsewhere. They'll probably think I'm after some sort of contract to protect their ship in the Gulf. They'll probably just tell me to fuck off. My friend, this is no joking matter for me. I despise the Americans, but I'm not a radical Islamic terrorist. I know that many innocent people are going to be killed. If I can play some small part in preventing it, I will. Okay. I'll help if I can. What, what sort of ship are they planning their action against? It's not just a sort of ship. It's the USS Cole. It's scheduled to be docked in Yemen soon. It might already be there. If you can help me, you must do something fast. They plan to use a small suicide boat packed with explosives and ram it into the ship. I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but I know it will soon. After he parted, I called Dr. Zidane in the Saudi embassy for my car phone. I said I needed to see him about a matter of critical importance. He agreed to see me immediately. I raced to the embassy and was hastily ushered into his office. I repeated Ishmael's story and said that I was approaching him because he had often voiced pro-American sentiments. His children went at school in America, and he also studied there. He was the only person I could think of who might be able to help. I was sure that no one else would even listen to me, especially not the staff at the U.S. Embassy. Zidane was taken aback at what I told him and asked if Ishmael would be prepared to meet him. I was sure Ishmael would have no objections to such a meeting, as he was very concerned about the situation. But I felt that the information was urgent and needed to be confirmed or refuted. Ishmael very reluctantly agreed to come to the Saudi embassy within the hour. I waited for him to arrive, and after effecting the introductions between him and Zidane, I left. Ishmael phoned me afterwards and said he had been taken to the boardroom where he was certain he had been filmed. He was debriefed by Dr. Zidane and a European male with a definite American accent, whom he assumed as a CIA representative. He was left with an uncomfortable feeling that they were merely playing games and didn't believe him. They were more interested in who had given me the information than anything else, he said. Of course, I would never reveal my source, but I at least expected them to listen and take some precautions, even if they doubted the veracity of the information. Well, the things at that, knowing we had done what we could and to send a warning to the Americans. Given our vastly different circumstances, Ishmael, a Muslim with a radical past myself, someone viewed with deep distrust by the intelligence and law enforcement agencies, you only wait and hope that nothing happened in the Gulf. On 12 October 2000, while watching CNN's evening news, I was shocked to see that the USS Cole had indeed been attacked by a small boat piloted by two suicide bombers while refueling in Yemen, packed with explosives. The boat had been rammed into the side of the ship, ripping a huge hole 
and its hull. 17 American sailors had been killed and 389 wounded. The attack happened exactly as Ishmael said it was. It was a shame that no one had listened. So, it's interesting that Barlow sort of randomly throws that in in his otherwise chapter that's totally focused on Saudi Arabia. I mean, obviously, Dr. Zidane played a very small uh, role in all of that, but uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Uh, so, there was one final intrigue that Zidane uh, asked Barlow to become involved in that I found to be really interesting. All right. So this also have why he's still the Saudi ambassador to South Africa, and this would have been around 2003. Zidane presents Barlow with a bag at a coffee shop. Upon opening at his office, Barlow discovers printing plates for U.S. $100 bills. Basically, Zidane wanted Barlow to assist in a counterfeiting operation, which Barlow wisely declined to do so. Time frame of all this is really interesting. It's playing out just as the Project Hammer stuff is starting to come out, but before 9-11. And then after 9-11, there seems to be a clumsy effort made to link Barlow to some kind of money laundering operation in this instance with Dr. Zidane. Of course, originally he was uh, approached about shifting all of this money, I should say, for the Saudi family, several planes worth right around 2000 Again, right as Project Hammer's coming up right before 9-11. And then after 9-11 and 03, on the time the build-up to Iraq is also happening, they seem to maybe try to entrap him in a money laundering operation. All right, folks, I think on that note, we will wrap things up for now. Um, this ended up being quite a lengthy interview, um, nearly four hours, but there's so much great stuff in here, and Needless to say, it'll be easier for everybody out there to digest uh, if you take in about two-hour doses instead of the full thing. So we shall leave off here and pick up uh, hopefully in about two weeks and uh, deliver some real goodies about what the actual purpose of Project Hammer was. Ed and I think we came up with a pretty good concept of this. And it's going to be really intriguing uh, to a lot of people on a lot of different levels and profoundly disturbing for that matter. So definitely stay tuned for the next one, guys. It's a barn burner for sure. And it is going to uh, drop some very, very interesting knowledge into this whole saga. So with that, I'm going to say, as always, thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go chain. You were ready, my people there, they feeling me. More characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby
he picked me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on mama jump down Turn around do it for me Stick it out Say one two three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Hands tied blindfold Jump into that battle zone Get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About again, it's Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Don't make payroll, forget about your maypole 